This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is also your host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Hello. What are we doing this week, Puka? We will be doing a dive into Immortal Eyes, the toy box, the first chronicle supplement for Changeling the Dreaming. Excellent. Actually, can you give us the history on this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it was the first... Um, sort of larger supplement released for Changeling. So we had the first edition core book, and then the Book of Storyteller Secrets, which, as we discussed in our other episode, was more of a jump start with some crossover rules tacked onto it, and the Player's Kit, which was basically just a sheet of character pages and some cantrip cards. So this is the first proper book. I believe it was August 95, maybe September, and you see a lot of references to it kind of scattered in a lot of the early source books, references to the Immortalized Chronicle. So this was like the ongoing, not exactly, you know, meta plot of the game, but the the ongoing story. It's just the regular plot, not the meta plot. Something like that. But yeah, there was a series of tie-in novels, the Immortalized Trilogy, and the story that's being told about the Oathmates in those novels, these three source books are meant for player characters to kind of be integrated into the... Um, the fabric of that world and the sidelines of that main story in theory yep and it also yeah talks this book talks about how it's the first chronicle source book for a world of darkness book and one question open question i have is were there other ones for other <laughs> world of darkness games later i think it's a flat out lie when they say that to be honest <laughs> well i guess it depends how you mean chronicle book so Certainly there were other books that combined a geographic setting with a story for players and a storyteller to use with like an ongoing Chronicle series. I did check and the Giovanni Chronicles for Vampire, I think came out just before Toybox did. So it was roughly about the same time, but it may also have been the case that this, this was certainly a planned trilogy from the start. We get references in this book to the second and third ones that will be coming up. So Maybe with the Giovanni. Yeah, was, I remember it was actually referencing multiple books in the previous mentions, if I remember correctly. Right. So yeah, it was it was certainly a planned trilogy from the get-go. Mm-hmm. But it's also the only city book that Changeling ever got. We have other books that are regional, but in terms of a specific urban area, in this case, San Francisco, I believe it is the only example of that from the line. Yeah. And we also have other books with chapters set in cities. Right. That's also not the same. Yeah. And what I like about it too is that it is it's separate from the meta plot enough that you can kind of ignore the meta plot entirely. And I think in that way it might be I guess most similar to something like Chicago by Night, that early line of books for vampire. Because in those you had the fully fleshed out setting, you had all the characters, and you had this through arc which was, you know, vaguely connected to the story of the Methuselahs and the Antediluvians, et cetera, et cetera, the sect wars, but you could also have it be a standalone game setting. And that's what this reflects to me. Yeah. Like it's definitely, you can go with the plot or you could just use it as strictly a setting book too. And it would 
Mm-hmm. You wouldn't feel like you wasted your money. And it's also so pretty. This one, at least. I mean, yeah. Chicago by Night's not a very pretty book, I don't think. Okay, so yes, let's get into the book. How is this book structured? Well, we're given a short introduction, and then we have, it's actually subdivided into two books, book one and book two. So book one, The Rainbow City, is the setting section, and that goes through three chapters of setting, history, and geography, respectively. And then book two is Dramatis Personae, so you get the nobles and commoners, and then a series of scenes which you can use as the storyteller to construct your own troops participation in the setting and then an appendix at the end with some very special guests that we'll get to mm-hmm. i'm excited to talk about some of these guests yes so so yeah so for the introduction yeah the only thing that really stood out to me was the it be it made a big deal about this being the first chronicle source book it really did but you know for all i know that was they, they may have been developing these all at the same time and this one was intended to come out first but didn't or something yeah, maybe at the time of writing it was accurate. Yeah. Anyway, it's a good idea, whoever came up with it. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I think that San Francisco is about the most perfect possible choice for a changeling city book, you know, or certainly for the first initial setting. I, I think I mentioned this when we talked about the jumpstart story at the end of the first edition core book, that it was such a, you know, it was exactly the right place to have a changeling game but to see it expanded yes, into a yeah. book length. Definitely in Concordia, I'll agree with you. Yes, yes. I will amend that to say in Concordia. Okay, so anything else to say on the introduction? Just that I dig this art overall. Yes. It's it's so changeling? Yes. It feels the most yeah. changeling art of, of a changeling book to me. Especially as we open chapter one and we have this fey sorceress casting color on the Golden Gate Bridge, sort of Pleasantville style. So yeah, I've wanted to get into first, uh, this is a, the setting section, has lots of interesting stuff, and I think would have been very useful when this book was published, but today, I'm less sure, <laughs> right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm going to do a moment of shameless self-promotion. So last year I did put out a Storyteller's Vault supplement called The Emperor's New Coat that was in some sense, a continuation of this book 25 years later. And one of the things that I specifically wanted to do with that supplement was to not have it be like a tourist guidebook, because in the day of the internet, a lot of the information that you're given here as a reader, you can very easily find and find more current you know, versions of it online. So the parts that stood out to me most rereading through this were all of the sort of non-informative, just the atmospheric stuff as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely think if you wanted to run a game at that time, like when this book was set, I think it would be a mm-hmm. lot more useful also, like even if you're running yeah. it today, because it's a lot harder to figure out what San Francisco was like in the mid-90s than it is. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, let's uh, get into this. So book one, chapter one was setting, specifically, which, yep. The setting part gives you a, a rough overview of the people, the tourism, the events, mm-hmm. traveling around the area, the climate. There's a whole section on the fog, which is wonderful. So There was one thing I think might be unique of a World of Darkness book, and you know I haven't read all of them, and it might be wrong here, but I can't think of any other book where it actually talks about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. <laughs> well, and it's funny to read this and you know, read something written in 1995 and see lines like, much of the state of California is firmly conservative Republican. But yeah, so that was interesting. I did like the note that the average banality of humans in San Francisco is six rather than seven. So we have a hard mechanical difference between 
banality levels with humans because that's just but terrible. also has more autumn people i believe it also yes said. yes, yes. Well, and so there's that specter of death from fire and earthquake that they kind of raise. And I, you know, I, on the one hand, I think that makes sense. On the other hand, I feel like a carpe diem kind of attitude, which permeates the city, that should overall be lower banality, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you have that kind of tomorrow we may die, we may all fall into the ocean when the coastline falls off, like... Yeah, but you know that should that should inspire people to that that turns into good building codes being banal. Perhaps, actually, maybe they can be now that I think about it. We also have a note that the Great Trod, concealed within San Francisco, was the first one to open during the resurgence mm-hmm. in 1969, and therefore there's a lot of she here. Yeah, lots of she. Well, yeah, and there's some, there's some interesting talk about demographics here too. Where it, uh, those at home wanting to figure out how many changelings can fit on the head of a city says San Francisco's a bit too much. And you might be able to, anyone so inclined, buy this, get the copy of this book and then try to work out how many changelings there are. And then that tells you too much per population in, anyway, I'm getting too much into the weeds here. What is too much though? What what would mean too much? Well, it was saying it's hard to get glamour. Like there's a lot of glamour here, but there's so many cathane and whatnot that it's hard to get like it's all sort of sucked up by everybody yeah which has been the case as we learn in the history chapter basically since san francisco was created there's always been kind of a lot of glamour and a lot of cathane and a lot of competition for it yep so i also noticed this book has uh it talks about the right of ignorance applying to prodigals and that it's very mm-hmm. enforced here like don't let the vampires know what's happening. Don't let the werewolves know what's happening. Don't let the mages know what's happening. And so on. And there are a lot of mages. Oh, yes. We'll get into that in that section, too. Yeah. I did have pages 11 and 12 of this chapter missing from my PDF that I bought on Drive-Thru RPG. Well, got for... Oh, no. Sort of bought on. But it was part of the, the C20 Kickstarter backing when I got it. But I don't think there was anything super... Well, page 11, page 11 is about the fog. Mm. which is fun ironic that that was one of the pages missing it was claimed by the mists yes maybe i did read it (laughs) and they just they talk about plants and stuff we have some information about the people who live there just talks about how it's very diverse with no racial majority which i believe is still the case though obviously gentrification has changed things a lot Mm -hmm. it did talk about gentrification too in this book so it's been going on for quite some time yeah and they talk about the economics. When you look at the history of the area, this is set in sort of the post-boom recession of the 90s. Uh, they make a note about how only the homeless population is growing. But it's a city of cycles because even since the 90s, we've already seen another boom and bust with the dot-com boom. And now another wave of tech kind of happening. So in a very short span of time, we've kind of gone through multiple cycles. Well, I think there was another um, boom and bust too in between the dot-com and now. <laughs> Or did it? Well, I mean, there's a housing crisis. One of the other things I like is that it's very sensory the way that this book is written. So, in the fog section, for example, you have things like often a gigantic column of fog can be seen rolling up through the gate, engulfing the bridge and Alcatraz Island, and continuing across the bay to eventually crash into Albany Hill on the far shore. And just these little lyrical moments that make me think someone who lived there at least for a little while wrote this, you know? Yeah, because it's very visualized, and I appreciate that. Yeah, this was not somebody. I don't even know how you would have written this at that time if you did hadn't lived there. Like it, right? 
somebody didn't take a guidebook and adapt it to changeling yeah which is good there is also a note that more changelings enter the chrysalis in the bay area i suppose than average and so there's a an order of knights called the rainbow order that specifically goes around as chrysalis hunters to patrol for new kithane so there's that i think i think you'd need those in lots of changeling heavy areas yeah i hope new york has one Mm -hmm. i just also want to say there's a nice touch with the weather section where they have the line if you wish the mood to change simply change the weather and i really like that because it's a very simple and elegant storytelling trick that often gets overlooked and san francisco is a city where the weather can change on a dime and it captures all of these different moods that you can shift from you know from Mm -hmm. one to the other very quickly so it helps to have kind of a built-in climactic reason to create new moods whenever it's appropriate which is nice oh i like that yeah and that that applies to a lot of places like everywhere i've lived yeah yeah, yeah. so we can definitely use that okay so do you want to do chapter two history now what were your thoughts about history well the i thought this was doing a better job for things like the new and whatnot than the previous books i'd read at least not that there was a lot but what it had was better <laughs> I I just still found it lacking. I, I don't know. And, and again, this is early. This is like before they were established. This is way before Player's Guide. Mm-hmm. This is even before Rage Against Appalachia. So we really have very little of substance about the Nunahi, but it still felt very flat to me, very one-dimensional. Yeah, but that one dimension wasn't, they're going to come and kill you. I guess we've added half of a new dimension in that yes. case, but it's still, it's like two paragraphs and that's yeah. three paragraphs and that's all you get. So it is, I I do wonder if, you know, they kind of started out thinking, oh, the Nunahir are just going to be non-player characters. They're going to be this antagonist who's not really an antagonist that you have to work with, but we're not going to have players have the option of playing them. They kind of read like the Sabbat really early on. Right, right. Not good, but... So they didn't have to flesh them out. Then they did. So Mm -hmm. having this early stuff, it kind of gives them... So it's always like, war bands and they're almost extinct and it's the last of them and that's very different from the much more vibrant way they're presented later mm-hmm. well they yeah. se- they seem to still be pretty from what they do have in this book they're the way they're presenting the setting they're more relevant than the amount of information they provided for them right like they do still control a lot of the area they still do they still are an active force and politically relevant but i wouldn't know with this in the previous books how to bring them in as npcs even yeah, because there's not enough detail. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I mean, we're given like 10 lines on the Olone as the in- indigenous people of the area, and then several pages about colonization, <laughs> which is yeah. really awkward. Well, and so, it's also the information about the indigenous people like in the history aspect is now out of date too. But Yeah, it does specify that this the, the colonization of the missions by Spain and then Mexico was the the banality for the Nunahi in this area which makes sense yeah but ultimately it's a much more pessimistic representation than they get later so mm-hmm. it's good that they've grown out of that i think yeah i'm just I'm, I'm contrasting it to like the one igor book or some of the other books we've already read where it was really bad i thought but anyway yeah. i'm not saying it's good anyways we got that history of colonization and colonialism and how mission dolores nearly destroyed the Nunahi of the area Then we get into the post-Mexican-American War history of California and San Francisco in the U.S., 
we are told that the city planner of San Francisco streets was a knocker Kinane. Here it is in yes. writing. And also was tapping into ley line energy, which has all sorts of yes. weird implications in the world of darkness. And is the only reasonable explanation for why San Francisco street plan is the way it is. <laughs> I remember in school, we learned about how when they were laying out San Francisco, they essentially just slapped a grid plan down on the map without really knowing the topography, which is why you have these hills that are absurdly steep. There's no sidewalks, there are steps and things like that. There's nothing to make you feel out of shape like walking around San Francisco hills. So, Oh, his ley line energy. From his ley line things, a bunch of small freeholds popped up in the, with the resurgence. Right? Like, wow. Like mushrooms in a fairy ring. Yeah. Amazing. I do really like that. So was that before the gold rush? or Just before. Okay. Because then the gold rush is immediately after. The gold rush is like the central dream here of, or the, the initial dream of San Francisco in its current incarnation. So yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a nice line in here about how it was the first cosmopolitan of the dreaming. And here is where we see the, the evidence of things like all of the people flooding into San Francisco, you know, had this dream of finding gold. And the changelings that were coming there, in order to create glamour, they started becoming street entertainers and opened red light districts and everything like that, and created Golden Gate Park, all to, to keep the glamour up because there were so many changelings who had to survive there, especially as Dreams of Gold failed and the laws tamped down on the wildness, creating banality. So changelings arguably are partly responsible for kind of the ethos of the city being so libertine and you know free and funky and everything because well, it was in their own best interests to survive yeah i think it, yeah dude, that does make a lot of sense like if changelings are active in an area they're going to want to shape the character of an area to better suit glamour right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah i think having a causative role in that way makes a lot of sense for changeling people sometimes say oh changelings are parasites in the, the sense that they feed on dreams in the same way that vampires are sort of blood parasites but I prefer to think of changelings more like farmers, yeah. you know, most changelings. I think they're you know. symbiotes. There's many ways to yeah, be that a symbiote. Like, it's not always mutual. Yeah. It can be mutualistic. It can be one way. It can be whatever. But That also works. Yeah. They cultivate. Mm -hmm. At least the Sealy do. Right. And then we get the other central dream of the city, which is the earthquake. Yeah. So is, is it really the one earthquake that's the huge impact on San Francisco? Yeah. There was the other one in 89, which did have a, a significant impact, but wasn't quite as embedded in the public consciousness. Because in the, in the 1906 one, it was the earthquake and then the fire and all of the people who died. And that was the sort of defining historical moment for the city, I would say. And yeah, sort of the European colonial, it was their first time in that area dealing with that. Like it wasn't like, there was a history of earthquakes beforehand. Right. There was another one, I think in like 18... In the 1860s, but it wasn't quite so bad, and it was further outside the city, I believe. Mm -hmm. So this one was like right offshore from Point Reyes, actually, where the Selkies live. Mm -hmm. Wonder if they had something to do with it. They might have done. One of the nice things about this book is you get all these little details, which are, I imagine, kind of turned up when they were doing their historical background reading. So you have this note about how Bank of America started when the banker managed to get his capital out of the burning city hidden on a wagon and could have ready cash while other banks had to wait for their red hot vaults to cool for weeks. Mm -hmm. And that's such a weird historical note to have in there, but that's like a flash of a 
a city dream, you know, yep. kind of like a folktale that would get traded among residents. So there's little moments like that sort of embedded throughout this book. And I really like that aspect to the text. Yes, that kind of spread the dream of, I think it's one of the pieces, like I've heard that one too before this book. It's spreading the dream of San Francisco to the rest of the U.S. Nice. Formatting wise, another nice thing is that there are these sort of purple tinted sidebars that are specifically changeling related or chimerical with relation to the geography, the history, the setting. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Yeah, I found that very helpful, especially if you're coming in now and yeah. wanting the changeling specifics. I'm actually wondering, do you know, there's a reference on page 26 after the quake, there was a tremendous backlog of depression, which makes sense. The death and de destruction had made a lasting impression on the hearts of the populace that pushed banality, pushed banality to an all-time high. But it mentions that many changelings were lost to banality during this time as their mortal forms were crushed, destroying their fairy soul as well. And it almost makes it sound like the earthquake itself killed both their mortal and fey selves simultaneously. But I don't know if that's exactly what they mean here. Yeah, that is. I'm always... There's this running thing, too, about what does being undone mean? Like, some right. changeling books or even parts of changeling books make it seem like, oh, that's just when you think you're immortal again. You're, you're a regular mortal person again. And other books are like, no, that's when your face soul dies. Right. Finality 10. Yeah. And this seems more like the you were undone and physically killed kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's sort of nebulous. And I don't know that there's any other moments of that elsewhere in the line. Aside from, like, being stabbed by a cold iron sword. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's another little, also, mini winter. Another little spring. Yeah. Then we hear about the rebuilding process and the building of the Great Bridges, the Golden Gate, and the Bay Bridge. We learn about Dr. Marstell, the pet bum who sacrificed himself on the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge so that it would stand, which is a very traditional myth theme that I always... It sounds weird to say I enjoy it when it appears, but I do, mm. you know? Yeah, that's one I hadn't so. heard before, but that's... But it's interesting, it's in the changeling section when it's a... This is not a changeling-specific story, right? Like, this is... Right. I also wonder, I don't think we really have hard and fast facts about glamour from tourism. Like, there is a tourism section in the first chapter where they just say, like, oh, yeah, one of the city's major industries is tourism. But it raises the question of, does tourism create glamour or banality or both or neither? Because I'm thinking, like, any tourist who sees the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time in person, it's such an iconic emblem of the city. I have to imagine that's good for like a quick point of glamour. Yeah. If there's a changeling nearby when it happens. It, it, it seems like a double-edged sword movement of glamour yeah. and banality kind of thing because there's different kinds of tourists and different types of tourist experiences. Also true. And then we go through the rest of the decades of the 20th century at a brisk clip. I like the contrast of the two couples on page 28 and 29 for some reason. I find it cute. Hippies and goths. Yes. Yeah. Maybe like she and Slua or something. Yeah. <laughs> we hear about the beats in the 50s and the hippies in the 60s and various tensions in the 70s, boom times in the 80s, followed by another earthquake, and then the 90s, where things are still pretty fraught in the world of darkness. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it's left off with California dropping in population and people leaving San Francisco. And like, mm, I didn't realize there was a period like that. <laughs> I don't think it was dropping in population. There were just there was less in-migration than out-migration. The birth rate was still keeping its oh, population. Oh, sorry. I meant, yeah, I meant from immigration, not from... Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's certainly, certainly picked back up since then, so... Yeah. <laughs> and then some... Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there in the 90s, so I don't really know firsthand what it was like, but that's why we have media. 
And the chapter closes with an account of the beginning of the Accordance War, which seems an odd thing to include here, because it doesn't have that much to do with San Francisco or the Immortalized Chronicle. So hmm. it's fine. Does it set in San Francisco at least? Or is that even no. Oh. <laughs> it's just I mean, I suppose because there's the reference to the first trod opened there. But it's also this moment where it says June 21st, 1969, which I don't think was the date of the moon landing either. So I don't know. This is all very confusing. That was July 20th. Right. This yeah. is June. What? Yeah, I don't think this was well researched when it was put together, this, this particular passage. But it says the trod was first opened on October 31st, 1969. So that's. Oh, it was sound. July 21st was the famous stepping onto the moon. Right. So maybe they just got the month mixed up i suppose overall i think that this this probably would have been more helpful in the core book mm -hmm. and isn't really necessary for the rest of this book at all no. but it gives you like the background of how high king david ended up being high king in the the midst of the turmoil of the accordance war i think an easier to read font would have been nice too that would have been nice not this fancy fake handwriting font yeah. and then we move on to Chapter three, geography. Oh, we also got that, that weird, cool looking dark horse with its tongue sticking out. The, the last thing in that chapter. That is a cool looking dark horse. So you have never been to San Francisco, is that correct? That is correct. How do you feel about it? Do you feel acquainted with it, with this geography section in hand? I, yes. I just wonder how much is it now and how much is it the 90s still? Yeah. So it's like a mixed bag. It's giving me nostalgia for a place that. I'm not sure existed and I'm not sure still exists. So it's weird, but I guess that's a change when feeling. So absolutely. I would say to some extent, a lot of it is still true. There are certainly individual neighborhoods that have changed dramatically, mm -hmm. but some of them are still the same. And some of them just don't have enough detail to, to say one way or the other. Like the Castro is amazingly under detailed. And yeah. that's to me, one of the quintessential neighborhoods of San Francisco proper. So could some of them, could you just like scratch out a name and put a new name in and it would work? More or less, I would say. Okay. We do have a note about all freeholds officially being noble run, but some are occasionally in commoner fealty. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of detail about sort of the political geography of who rules where and in what way for anyone who wants to do kind of an intrigue-based court game. Mm -hmm. And as far as I remember, in C20, they've actually kept kind of a lot of the nobles in place, even though they would be 25 years older. It's still, maybe just for the sake of convenience, the same political lines and the same rulership. Yeah. I think if I were to take this book and I'm running it now, a lot of the time I would just put forward the Noble's Chrysalis or whatever by 25 years or whatever. Makes sense. Unless it was like very deep into the Accordance War as their history, which a few of them are. Or someone really key to the meta plot, like Queen Aaron. Yes. She probably just needs to be queen when she was queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed too, like San Francisco is multiple counties. I'm like, I always trying to figure out in yes. Changeling, what is the county and what is a duchy and what is a barony? Like if I'm running it in, I don't know, cities I live in, right? What's the county? Like, do, should I just look at what a county is? We have terms county here. I don't think it always corresponds as neatly as it should. Within the Bay Area, you have the Duchy of Golden Gate, which is San Francisco proper. The Royal Barony of Muirwood, which is like Queen Aaron of Pacifica's little private hideaway in the North Bay. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Duchy of Goodwine, which is the wine country to the east of that. 
Then if you go south past Berkeley, you have the County of Oakhold, which is the East Bay. And then the, I think it's Duchy of Finvar is the one in the South Bay. So you have two duchies, which are multiple cities, one duchy, which is just a city, a county and a barony, and it's all kind of mishmashed. Well, I assume the counties and baronies are within duchies normally, except for that Queens, right? Or does that not make sense? I don't think it corresponds. I think there's a hierarchy of titles, but not a... The domains don't necessarily rule over one another. Oh, that's really confusing. It is. <laughs> but I believe that's... I mean, I think that's how it works, like in traditional feudalism in, in some cases. I'm not a historical expert on this. So well, I know enough about history to know there's no such thing as traditional feudalism. There's... There you go. Many traditional systems called feudalism today. Feudalism of the Franco-British type. Even then, I know it changed in Britain over the years. Oh, wait, I think there was a little section explaining this, wasn't there? It just says, except as otherwise noted, assume that a noble possessing a freehold in an area already claimed has sworn fealty to that land's ruler. Hmm. So. Yeah. For the show notes. Yes. I guess we could just rapidly touch on some of these areas. Mm Mm-hmm. There's Marin County, the richest county in the nation, which is the north end of the Golden Gate across from San Francisco. I do really like how there are these little, again, lyrical moments of detail about the actual physical settings of places like the Freeholds. So in, I think it's Care Redwood, which is the Queen's Retreat in the Muir Woods, we get details about things like chimeric glow beetles and musical lichen and a ballroom floor made of braided roots and things like that. And it's just very artfully constructed, very visual very handy for anyone who wants to actually give some detail to that setting in a game. Mm -hmm. Then we have the wine country, run by satyrs more or less. That makes sense. The Delphic Chambers, where the Brotherhood of the Barrel gets together and drinks and has attacks of prophecy. Things like that. That might be my favorite tidbit in this entire piece, actually. So the East Bay being dangerous, unseely place? Yeah. I'm I'm not wild about that. Uh, characterization. <laughs> yeah, I think I know enough about geography there to know that's not good either. I will say, I mean, the East Bay, because you have like Oakland and other towns that have sort of a reputation for being grittier, and especially in the 90s, as I understand, there was a lot more tension. But it's still, it still feels slightly facile to be like, oh yeah, that's like, that's where all the unseely live, you know? But like Berkeley? Well, yeah, I mean, Berkeley, Berkeley is sort of the the exception to to that okay yeah moving on uh, berkeley is the crown jewel of the duchess evil's crown who we formerly saw in book of storyteller secrets she was the duchess oakhold is i think the most interesting domain because essentially the political situation that you have there is there's count elias who is a close ally of duke aeon of san francisco and is a silly issue who's been ennobled and is kind of holding on to Oakland with his, you know, two hands and is being challenged by this insubordinate unsealy named Blade. Mm-hmm. You have to have Blade in there. Blade is like a rabble rouser associated with the Shadow Court and is much more fleshed out in the actual trilogy of novels. So mm-hmm. I think that's why I kind of have a soft spot for him as a character. And I, and I like that the World of Darkness now then can't use uh, Blade as a name of any of the uh but he can still hunt vampires around oakland maybe yes and oakland does get a lot of detail here which is good because it's a large and diverse city 
it is not much smaller than San Francisco proper. So it talks again, again the metaphysics mm-hmm. of cold iron again shows up here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does it still have like steel making facilities there? I see no reason why it wouldn't, but oh. at the time, certainly it seems to have had. Mm-hmm. And then we get the inland valleys with basically no information. We learn that Countess Yvain likes to hang out with Selkies. So that's good for her. Mm-hmm. She cares nothing for politics, maintains only the smallest of military forces, and spends most of her time with the Selkies who flock to her court at Anyo and are her greatest allies. Way to go, Yvain. And then yeah, keep, San Jose. I keep forgetting, like, San Jose is very close to San Francisco, right? Well, it's like an hour, an hour and a bit south. It's at mm-hmm. the south end of the bay. It's interesting. So they do reference Silicon Valley here and some of the other kind of towns along the way, all kind of leading down to Stanford, which obviously, since social media and a lot of the companies moved out there has changed dramatically i imagine Mm -hmm. but we don't get nearly as much information about those as we do about the winchester mystery house i mean you do need to have the winchester mystery house you do it is compulsory hundreds of rooms leading is this the right book that should have had emperor norton well emperor Norton. yes it should have had emperor norton which is part of the reason why he was such a big freaking deal in the book that i wrote (laughs) But Emperor Norton is briefly mentioned in the first edition core book story, Toys Will Be Toys, because it is his toy box that is the namesake for for this book. And this is a continuation of that story to a degree, so it's surprising that there's not more detail about him. We hear about Colma, which is where San Francisco buries all of their dead, or used to, I don't know if they still do, and stuff about the surrounding islands and bridges and the bays a lot of it is just like you said you know guidebooky information stuff that you could find on a mapping app or wikipedia or whatever mm-hmm. and then we get san francisco proper which takes up as much as all of the rest combined i mean it is focused on san francisco that's not oh i'm not complaining <laughs> of course they have trolls on bridges too yeah there are many bridges which need many troll guards and they trying to figure out the logistics of this and it's not really working they have treasures which allow them to sense the presence of changelings crossing into the city pretty handy Hmm. oh then you don't have to be staying at the bridge constantly just looking at everything yeah yeah we get like an overview of the city again so more about the ethos of the city the city that waits to die i like that that chimerical hot dog stand (laughs) slash cable car yeah, there's a lot of references. I mean, for all of like the characters and stuff that come up later, there's also a lot of throwaway references to individuals and places and little chimerical things that are in and of themselves good story hooks. So it's a very rich source book for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Cable cars are so iconic, they have their own chimerical one. Well, I grew up in like the other North American city that has cable cars. So, ah. so then we have some of the neighborhoods of the city. Chinatown, I feel like, is kind of shown in the worst possible light. <laughs> yeah. Not great. But yeah, like that's not good. It's a very... Because I, I would have wanted... It's like well, I mean, it's the most famous Chinatown anywhere, I think. And it should be like, oh, here's some cool changeling stuff that's actually good. Like not just gangs roaming. Yeah, a lot of these... It's a very unevenly... In the same way that we said this was clearly written by someone who had spent at least some time there, I feel like they knew their neighborhoods and wrote the most about them yeah you know we have things like we learn about the civic center plaza and the homeless encampment there as a nexus of banality 
the Embarcadero and the Ferry Building, which have chimerical feet disembodied running around. Fisherman's Wharf is mostly about Alcatraz rather than the actual Fisherman's Wharf, within a, a surprising Wraith connection, so there's that. Well, I, I don't like that they had Alcatraz being a place changelings don't go. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, you need to have... Something like that I think needs to have changelings going there. Well, but it sends them into Bedlam, so... Yeah. I imagine it's the kind of thing that the more daring ones would do as a kind of rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Because like anything with a strong story, I just feel like it should have changelings there. Yeah, but if it's a strong story for violent wraith conflicts as well. Okay, then it should have violent conflicting changelings there. <laughs> Maybe best left alone. Yeah, but that's where you can put your violent red crap gangs, right? No, perhaps. We have information about the financial district and Jackson Square and Knob Hill, also called Snob Hill, which is where the Duke lives. And I do like how they talk about to Fay Eyes. Knob Hill is just like full of parapets and gargoyles and rainbow mm-hmm. colors and everyone who lives there is just kind of steeped in glamour. Which, on the one hand, I get the sort of fairy tale palace aesthetic that they're going for here. On the other hand, it's so expensive there and so yeah. gentrified that calling it full of glamour just kind of maybe, rings wrongly to me. Maybe we'll do a full episode on the banality of yuppies. Exactly. Because <laughs> that's a tension changeling heads like the she are the most vulnerable banality and then i'm like thinking okay well like you have a place with lots of money or politics that's supposed to have changelings but it would also have a lot of banality in it yeah there is a nice note though there's what's called the voice of the hill which i like and it's that sort of siren song that attracts people to san francisco attracts kithane mm-hmm. and they talk about chimerical chords which are like these little resonant bursts created where does it say Many of these condensations of dream that adorn these lovely houses seem to be made of colored crystal or glass themselves, and when the traffic is just right, they vibrate so that a mighty chord is created. So just imagining these sort of ringing musical notes kind of floating around the air as you walk around is a nice little touch, I would say. We have North Beach and South of Market. South of Market, Soma, is also, I would say, has also changed dramatically. A lot of tech and coffee shops in there now. What was at the Telegraph Hill hunting grounds? There are parakeets there now. There's a documentary about them. But like that, what is that area? I didn't really understand what it was talking about. So it's it's like almost the northeast corner of the city, I think. It's where Coit Tower is, which is this nice little vantage point that you can stand out and look over the city. Okay, so it's not full of houses or shops or something. Well, I mean, it's all all of this, I would say, is mixed residential and commercial to some extent. Okay. I'm just wondering why they set that as where all the monsters are to go hunt. Yeah, I'm not sure where exactly in Telegraph Hill would be a game preserve for the Duke. Yeah. But so they claim. And then we have a Kithane head shop owner, Iggy, who seems to be under the influence of shrooms most of the times. Yeah, I, I had an interesting question about that one. I mean, I guess the shrooms still, but like, since legalization, did that like destroy his shop with banality? Or I would say no, because, well... I mean, there there are a lot of dispensaries and a lot of shops. You, I, I would say you can tell the difference between the ones that have probably been there pre-legalization and the ones that have opened since, because okay. it's like the difference between, it looks like a lava lamp come to life, and then it looks like, you know, medical clinic. Mm. Kind of that distinction. So there are certainly banal okay. ones, but then others that probably still have a touch of the glamour worked into them, okay. especially along Hate Street. Yeah, so where, where I live in Canada, since we legalized, there was this, the old head shops are tend to be shutting down. Yeah. And 
new places. I wouldn't describe them as medical clinics, more like, you know, Apple stores. Yeah, that's actually, that's a better description. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're definitely trying to be aesthetically pleasing, but. Right. But it's very clean lines and, you know. Yep. Bad puns. LED lights. Yep. And it is, it does talk about the tenderloin. The tenderloin, I would say, is still the area that's like the, the most, the bad neighborhood in quotes, you know. And it's right in the heart of the city. So all of these really nice, posh, gentrifying neighborhoods are all around it. And the mm-hmm. tenderloin proper is like the seedy underbelly in the middle. Yeah. But I, I, before we started doing this podcast and reading everything, that's the kind of place I always pictured changelings living. Like, yeah, it's cheap. Certainly. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's where the, you get to like, what is changeling a metaphor for? Mm-hmm. But it's where the metaphor for a lot of different kinds of people that don't fit into society. So I always, yeah, but. absolutely. And then we just get a big old alphabetical list of the outlying districts, which aren't really worth going into much detail about. We don't get much detail about them anyway. Yeah. We have the we have the gay nightclub changes, the Changeling mm-hmm. nightclub. Mm-hmm. There's a fair amount about Golden Gate Park, which makes sense. Yeah, the Japanese tea garden, I'm like, it's a freehold. And I wanted more like about it. Yeah. Because, you know, you have, like, is it Kithane Run? Is it? whatever they thought of as Asian changeling run is it yeah do you know what I look at this dearth of detail and I think this is a storyteller's vault supplement waiting to happen mm. listeners take note yes that is not something I could write <laughs> I know nothing about it I'll share my photos in the show notes yes we have uh, a little bit about the mission district which again has changed dramatically since this was written so is now gentrifying rapidly and stuff about the Presidio and the Western Edition. So yeah, it just kind of rapidly scrolls through a lot of these neighborhoods. I do like the very final section is a sidebar about the Fillmore, which is this concert hall. And they talk about the chimeric mm-hmm. chords that are kind of hiding in the rafters. And the only two acts in the past 10 years that have coaxed them out are Duke Aeon, who is a musician, but also Lorena McKenna. So I took that. Yeah. Oh, wait, that would be the perfect time for Lorraine McKenna. It would, it would yeah. yes. This was the whole Lilith fairy. Pre-mummer's dance. Yeah. So overall, I do think the chapter would be useful for anyone who had kind of plotted out the geography of the Chronicle around town they wanted to run, but then wanted some specific notions about each place they yeah. were kind of stumbling across. And I think it's definitely a, if you have more info on like the San Francisco Bay Area or whatever, uh, right. Looking at those blue or purple, I'm bad at color identification. Sidebars would be, I think, the most useful parts. But yeah, and that's it for book one, the setting. So mm-hmm. that's that's the setting book, more or less. Yep. Book two, dramatis personae, <laughs> and we get chapter four, nobles, which is also kind of a setting section chapter. It's true. I think overall, I mean, I don't know that we have to spend too much time going into each of these these personages, but it occurs to me that this would be the first Changeling book in the line where you get fully fleshed out characters with their own sort of epic backstories, because every Changeling has to have an epic backstory, you know, more than any other splat, maybe. They need to have one. They had that in Book of Storyteller Secrets. Well, but but they, the characters in there, though, I mean, when we talked about Dr. Chapman, Dr. Chapman had an epic backstory. The player characters themselves, not not quite so much. Terry the Childling mm-hmm. had a backstory, 
But this is like every significant personage in San Francisco yeah. has some kind of involved history, which I think is fitting, you know? Mm -hmm. And the, in, the ones that aren't significant are just really mean they're just not getting it. They're not listing their involved backstory yet. Right. But it contrasts with something like a vampire source book where you might get 50 vampires, but each has like one or two paragraphs. Yeah. If that. So we have Queen Aaron of Pacifica and her lover Hamal. So basically mm -hmm. Queen Aaron is this sort of, she was a former brat and grew up when she slaughtered some commoners back in 85, which caused some drama. But she effectively abdicated her responsibilities because of this satyr who swept her off her feet. And her baron Harold is the one really kind of running things yep so i i like her i think she's good like she's an interesting character but she's more importantly she, it's easy to come up with a lot of interesting stories that would affect the pcs in the area because of her mm, yeah 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 and she's also as we've been going through all the characters this is the first time i've read a character where it says they're a fiona and i went yeah that's a fiona <laughs> in, in 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 the order like that we're reading these books because i'm like yeah she's but, you know. but she she doesn't actually live in San Francisco, I think, right? She she visits her Muirwood retreat, but Care Angelus is the seat of Pacifica, I believe. Oh, okay. So it's funny that she's actually in there. And really Duke Aeon is like the the local There's a lot of things know. about her though, like influence on the, the whole setting book. Oh sure, yeah. From her. Well, and her birthday is celebrated throughout. So yeah. <laughs> there's that. Her choices impact other folks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like without ever having her appear on screen in your game, she can still yeah. very much cause lots of interesting story just by what she's done in the background. Yeah. Then we get Duchess Evil, who's the sassy, unseely Liam, and Duke Aeon of Golden Gate, who's like the tragic rocker from the 70s who had his love murdered by Dante and has been mournful ever since as well as his his heir, Aliera, and his assistants, Alyssa and Cumulus. These are all characters, incidentally, who are like point-of-view characters in the novels. So reading through them, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know. Yeah, I liked, I saw Baron Jacob in here. Mm -hmm. It's like, it says a grumpin name only. I'm like, in C20, he'd be a childling. It's great. <laughs> Life stages. Yeah. Yeah. We get information about Elias and his soothsayer, nine-year-old Lady Lomasi, and Sir Troy. And then my favorite noble, Countess Yvain, who's the earth-mothery, hippy-dippy type sorceress. I think what I like about her is that she's a very un-she-she. -she. Mm -hmm. And she's like an islanded who hangs out with selkies. She has Glamour 10, which is always impressive. And the last of her important chimera is Yakov, a man made from matchsticks. Yakov's head is constantly burning, and it is his flame that Evane uses to begin any and all fires in Selcrest. So I guess she's just setting fires to places. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she still feels very elanid to me. Yeah, that's true. And she has armor made entirely of forged water from the Selkies, which is pretty awesome. Oh, and Yakov's head changes from healthy yellow to venomous green when hostile magics are directed at the Countess. It's like someone made a list of Wiccan stereotypes or something and and just put them all into one character yeah. and and like a bingo card and nice thing about changeling unlike say mage it makes more sense to have a character like that <laughs> like yeah it doesn't matter what and the I love reality it. is of how people are she's she's my favorite <laughs> one thing is that you can very clearly see they had a lot of fun creating all of these treasures because all of them seem to have some kind of unique 
named treasure that does something groovy. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I think this chapter is kind of indicative of why I find the game, the first edition games overall focus on the she kind of frustrating sometimes because it's very storybook fairy tale, high drama, high fantasy, intrigue, sodden, epic kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. It's just not the only kind of game that I want to run or play in for that matter. Yeah. Like it's as written here. If you were setting a game in San Francisco and you're all playing commoners, the game is about what the she are doing to some extent. Right. Like that's, that's yeah. It's very driven by, yeah. It doesn't mean you have to side with them or interact directly with them, but you're, they're impacting everything in your story a lot. Yeah. But then we move on to commoners. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, there's, you know, these sort of extended backstories for a handful of them. Mm-hmm. Rather than being divided up by Duchy Barony, etc., it's divided up by the different Motleys, starting with Ragger's Band, which is led by Ragger, the unseely Boggin, who awakened before his third birthday, mm. which is pretty early. Yep. Were his parents mortals? <laughs> Unclear. He has, he has serious, like, Rufio energy. I mean, he's kind of like the lost boy par excellence. So yes, his parents so. are mortals. <laughs> Then we have the Oakland People's Front, run by Blade, and that's sort of the the ragtag alliance of uneasy bedfellows. They're united against the Queen's Court, so they're sort of the anarchists of Pacifica, and have begun importing massive quantities of cold iron weapons at the Shadow Court's behest. How intriguing. I Whenever you try to think of, like, the morality of it, what this is saying about the morality of these characters and their actions... In these yeah. first edition books, especially, I get very confused and possibly concerned. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what happens when you no longer have a morality stat. Yeah. For all the flaws of the morality stat, it's still, <laughs> it's still there. Yeah. Because it's like, what are you saying about if you're opposed to the she rule, that means you're going to import cold iron weapons? Yeah. So it would seem. Yeah. He also hates satyrs, though, so there's that. Mm. Blade also has a dancing scimitar, which I kind of like. I like dancing swords. Yeah. And then we have the Holy Temple of Light and Sound, which is a knocker satyr issue kind of. That's where you have a party. Yeah, they're they're the the musical and partier types. They're the ritualistic celebrants, mm-hmm. led by Hector, the uh, gay leather daddy satyr. So good for Hector. Mm-hmm. But he's in a committed relationship with Boggin Sam the Clam. Why did I read that as red cap when I was going through this? I'm like, that's a weird red cap. Oh no, you're right. He is a red cap. I take it back. Yeah, he was a really weird red cap. He has the, More like a boggin than a red cap. Yeah. And then the edge of the labrys. There's an interesting little bit in there. It's run by a nymph who doesn't get a name. And you've read a lot of Changeling books, right? What's a nymph? Here's the thing. So before there were the anonymi, there are references to the nymphs. I believe the only actual statted nymph that we get is in Shadows on the Hill. And they're kind of undefined. I'm of the opinion that they are different than the anime, and we never got an actual write-up for them. They're just kind I, of... I was just picturing this lesbian gilly-do. Doesn't really... Kind of, yeah. That works. <laughs> but yeah, they are, the, they are the radical feminists of Stanford, and they're opposed to the Society of Telemachus, which are the progressive academics of Berkeley. So as someone who moves through academia, I find that, you know, darkly amusing, I suppose. They have a Vala as a character here who I liked because the time of this book coming out was the kind of person I was hanging out a lot with. So maybe younger, but she's very Lilith fair. 
She's the yeah. Lilith Fair Slua. It could trick my friends would be described as Lilith Fair Slua in the mid to late 90s. Awesome. And then finally, the Brotherhood of the Barrel, which are the satyrs who run the wine country, essentially. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a little dismayed that, again, like the commoner section is shorter than the noble section, and none of them yeah. get cool treasures. Or, well, Blade has the Dancing Scimitar, but... They, they did lampshade that a little bit, but still. They're saying, like, this is a very she-heavy area, much more than a typical setting, but... It's the most fleshed out setting, so maybe they shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And that's it for characters who are just sort of present. I I suppose they're the leaders of the various, you know, factions and stuff. So that's why they get their own chapters. Yeah, I think this is still going with the 1E definition of Motley, where it's much bigger than a group of player characters. Yeah, it's more like an association or society. I mean, Ragger's Band has apparently up to 30 followers can be called upon. Mm Mm-hmm. So then chapter six is where we get actual scenes. Mm-hmm. And we open with a splash page of my favorite commoner in the book, which is Sorry Martin chasing a toy soldier down a street. Mm-hmm. I just like Sorry Martin because he has this aggressive chicken hawk chimera who chain smokes and fights people with little, little gloves. I, I am never sure in Changeling books, like if somebody's got pointed ears, is that supposed to be a she or not? And that's always... Or I think it's all like of them, all the fae. All the fae just have pointed ears. But if they pointed ears and no obvious other... I guess he's got the fully black eyes, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just an emblem of feyness. So maybe just, I should say, as a brief overview of the Immortal Eyes arc, because it doesn't actually give you much detail, and I don't know if they were just kind of assuming you had read the novel along with this book, you know, because it keeps referencing, Mm -hmm. like, oh, the Immortal Eyes Chronicle, the Immortal Eyes Story. And if if you didn't know who that was, it might be kind of confusing but the basic premise of it which is like vaguely alluded to later in in some of these stories is that there's this group of six characters who are oath bound to find the immortal eyes stones which are these four treasures that were taken from the eyes of these two she brothers who held open the last gate to arcadia and each of the four eyes has different powers so the first one is the keystone which opens anything And that was what was used to open the toy box and release these sort of chimerical toys uh, that the characters are chasing down. In the course of that adventure, the six main characters of the Immortal Eyes arc get put on this quest to locate the gate to Arcadia. So that's kind of their overall oath-bound voyage. So with these three stories, their, their journey starts in San Francisco. And in principle, this is supposed to enable your troop to actually kind of like encounter them, I suppose, or maneuver around what they're doing or cross and connect with their main storyline. You do get stats for them, but that's basically Mm -hmm. it. It's not really like, you can play this character in this story too. So it's a little deceptive in that. Yeah, I found it a bit confusing because this book is called Immortalize the Toy Box, and there's three of them. Right. And then they talk about the Toy Box trilogy, or the Immortalize trilogy. So I'm like, oh, okay. Why, Why is it? So it's really six books. If it's prefaced by Immortal Eyes, it's the game source book. If it's just the toy box, it's the novel. Yeah. But this is the toy box, which is, yeah. But the Immortal Eyes is also the trilogy of novels? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little confusing. What's the first novel called? The toy box. Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so there's, there's that. I think that, honestly, you can kind of leave that to one side and just when there's a reference to it in this book, just like, yeah, okay. I mean, there's a point where it says, oh, the characters hear about stuff going on at court around Lee, the she knight. And that's Mm -hmm. like, 
the protagonist of the series. So if you haven't read the series, just, oh, okay, cool. But overall, I like, as this chapter opens, it kind of advises you on how to use it. And I, I think the construction of it is good. They talk mm -hmm. about paying a lot of attention to creating mood and description, cleaving to the stated themes of San Francisco as a whole and the game as a whole and this specific story, and then just kind of maintaining the overarching thread. This is really written, I think, for storytellers who want to tell full stories, not just kind of propel their players from A to B to C to D. They really want to flesh it out. This will give them a lot of detail to do that. I, I did find, I don't, I don't, I mean, this is not, I'm not a big person on this kind of material anyway for any game, but this felt very linear to me, all these stories. Like it said it wasn't, and I was reading through, like, how would I actually, well, what if the players, do, well, first of all, the first story, they're chasing this. Yeah. And it's very. <laughs> the first story is just a chase, essentially. But it's very heavy handed. You can't catch them. I'm like. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. No, I mean, the first the first story is purely intended to introduce a series of colorful characters, yeah. which is fine. I mean, we get more commoners with more epic backstories that yeah. you can use in more ways for your own game. So. Yeah. And I mean, there's other people who like running games differently, and that's fine. It's just, it was a bit hard for me in this chapter because it's I'm not the target audience, I don't think. Well, I think it's also, I mean, they, they describe the first story as being like The Hobbit in relation to The Lord of the Rings. So mm -hmm. a lighthearted introduction that you can just kind of breeze through yeah. and i could see this as like you could run this as a standalone session in the middle of some other long-running yeah campaign yeah and we do get some neat little npcs and stuff that you could certainly throw in all sort of the place like sorry martin so yeah you're just chasing down some chimerical toys that's the entirety of the first story <laughs> mm -hmm. the second i think is a little more it, i mean it's more of a film noir you know it's kind of like hard-boiled detective work kind of stuff and it's a lot more tied to the main immortalized story so that one i think is a lot more solid if you wanted to really explore that aspect of the world mm -hmm. and it gives you a lot more to um you know the characters go to this one part of town and then they go up to wine country to meet with the brotherhood and then they go to oakland where they have an arch nemesis etc etc so it moves you around the geography more and kind of gives you it kind of shows you the different groups that have already pre presented in the setting parts. Mm -hmm. And it's overall kind of dark in mood. So that kind of, that makes up for the sort of happy-go-lucky chase of the first story, I would say. Oh, and it's got more Sealy Red Caps. There are some Sealy Red Caps. Yes, just a lot of them in this book. <laughs> this one, I wrote her a death scene. Oh. Yeah, I felt like she had earned one. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to shill for my Selkie book. And then the third and final story, again, has very little to do ostensibly with the main Immortalize arc, but I think it introduces a much better daunting foe than some random psychotherapist. And mm -hmm. this is Chevalier Ryder. This is an interesting case because essentially the way he kind of snapped was that he had a very traditional folkloric problem, which was conflicting uh, Gesa. So during the Accordance War, he had refused to slaughter commoners as the other she were doing, and that was like his oath. And then his life was saved by another she on the battlefield who then called in his debt to have him murder a commoner, the knocker Whalen. And so that tension of honor caused him to go mad and become daunting. So I like that as a motivating reason. I don't know in the later sort of material we get about how Dante come to be, if that really kind of holds up so well. But 
I think it's a very compelling sort of backstory for a villain to have. Mm-hmm. So he is that kind of fallen knight archetype. Well, you could even make him not, whether or not he's officially a Dantain in whatever conception of Dantain you have, he still works as a villain with that motivation. Right. And he's got some frightening stats. So hmm. where, where was he? What page? Page 122. Oh, okay. And he has John Lennon glasses. So yeah. extra creepy. And he's also a point of view character in the novels. So you get some good insight into the Dantain mindset. Well, that's interesting having Dantain as a point of view character. Yeah. So in this third story, he's working with Malakar, the sort of embittered grump satyr unseely sorcerer from the first edition core book. And they're kind of chasing around this little she-girl that the characters have to rescue. Again, kind of just a straightforward, this is more linear than the second story, but rather than just be this happy-go-lucky chase, it's meant to be more horrific, I would suppose. And then we get Sam the Clam at the end. So those are the three stories. What do you think about how that's set up? Um, I guess I think it's interesting material. I liked the, actually, the other book we did, even though I didn't like the story, I liked how it was structurally done better than the, and I found all these very linear. This will happen yeah. and this will happen. And I've, I've never had a role-playing game go like that, where it happens in order. Fair. Yeah, that's true. But they were interesting stories, yes, and characters. But again, it's the first changeling story source book. So... I suppose mm-hmm. they felt they had Wait, to so this was before the other one? It was roughly contemporaneous with Book of Storyteller Secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find this one much more richly... I find this one a lot more customizable, a lot richer, and a lot more conducive to kind of making it your own. Because oh, okay. Book of Storyteller Secrets, that jumpstart story was also kind of linear. I found it... I don't know. The difference of opinion there. But I, 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 think, I think I would have liked these stories structured like Book of Storyteller Secrets. And then I would have... That's fair. I think it's fine overall. I mean, I think it would be good for new storytellers mm-hmm. who are building a chronicle over like three to six sessions and just kind of need material to get their players familiar with the setting, familiar yeah. with the world. And if you just sort of followed along it until it went off the rails. Yeah. There's enough in this book that you could still, the setting's very well detailed. There's so many different characters. It's like, oh, they're doing nothing. Okay, let's just stop. I'm not. I'm not following this book anymore. I'm just going to wing it from that point but we've already set things up for the players and i think for that it's good yeah and the real charm is in the characters i mean the characters are really what make this all of these stories kind of come to life so you can easily extract them and use them in another context but i do think it is confusing for anyone who doesn't have like the history of the accordance war in pacifica memorized or Mm -hmm. the plot of the immortal eyes chronicles (laughs) yeah i was a little bit of confusion too because i haven't read the immortal eyes novels right so if you want to actually, quote, properly use them, you need to have a lot of background, other material, which some of which I don't think was actually fully released yet when this came yeah. out. So, yeah. But I think, I think I could use all this for, we take this with the C20 book and Wikipedia. Right. <laughs> and I, I'd feel confident running a game in San Francisco. Yeah. And then we get the appendix. Yes. We get, again, not much information on the Nunahi, but there they are. Mm-hmm. So, and then we get our first kith outside of the core book kiths with the introduction of the selkies. Mm. And you have something to say about the selkies, don't you? I just I adore the selkies. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I watched The Secret of Rowan Ennish, and it's one of my favorite films from childhood. And I have a deep and abiding love for their sort of caught in betweenness in folklore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they're one of my favorite kiths, which is why I wanted to write a selkie book. So, is it, is it available? 
It is available on Storyteller's Vault, yes. and all proceeds go to the medical fund for Changeling author Nikki Rea. So, awesome. please purchase it. I tried. Mm. You know, <laughs> I think it's okay. Yeah, the selfie right up here felt. It's like I liked the idea. I'm a little bit unsure about the implement implementation in here. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not very even because first edition was not particularly yeah. concerned like, with balancing kits. Like their biggest birthright isn't under birthrights. Right. <laughs> yeah. They just happen to also be skin changers. Yep. And I don't I, Did we ever get stats for seals in Changeling the Dreaming? Yeah. They're easy enough to make up, I'd say. Yeah. So in addition to these, I like the selfies too. And I like them in general, not just in Changeling. Huzzah. Um, next we have the Kindred. The highest generation is ninth generation. And you have things like a seventh generation neonate and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's... The vampires are pretty unnoteworthy, I would say here. Yeah, the werewolves were much more interesting. Yeah, we can see. Yeah, the vampires are just kind of noteworthy in that they don't really work as they don't quite follow what I get the impression you're supposed to do with vampires exactly. But well, there is the note that there aren't actually that many vampires mm -hmm. in San Francisco. I mean, in part because there's so many other types of supernaturals, and then because it's also because it's California, which is like anarchy territory and in vampire. Yeah. So you have like the Sabbat in Oakland and the Venture somewhere, but then Anarchs everywhere. So it's all kind of a muddle. Yeah. And, but it's all kind of like, why would these be in your game that you're running here? They're like yeah, wandering monsters, the, the kindred. Yeah. Yeah. None of these vampires stood out to me. Yeah. I'd... But the werewolves, I liked the bone gnar chalk artist, which is a very difficult phrase to say. Mm -hmm. We have some mages. The mages, I found another... These ones, I definitely see how to use them in your chronicle. Mechanically, yeah. there's a weird bit, which might be more appropriate on other our sister podcast, we could say. Or friend, friendly podcast. I don't know. Friend of the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So shout out. To it. Uh, they all have really high erite and low spheres. I'm like, what? That's true, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, you know... It's it's not to say that someone whose arete is increasing necessarily has to also bump up all their spheres, but yeah. generally that's what happens. Well, it's like with the the vampires. Like, okay, fine, one of them's low generation, but like they're all low generation. These are all PC level things with high high arete. Okay, fine, but I did yeah. find like if you just lower the arete rating into the highest sphere, and then I use them no problem. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess they wanted NPCs that were roughly at player level. So, mm -hmm. but I thought, yeah, these these are very changeling crossover focused which i liked right exactly yeah you don't need to detail all the mages that don't interact with changelings yep i do like bink who's a an etherite who's a mid 40 something perpetual student who's really hyper and runs around campus and throws pixie dust at people yep but it's also dealing with like knocker tech almost or like glamour tech she has a polychromatic handheld laser generator awesome i feel like i need to know more people like that in my life i know people who would throw the glitter and i know people would have the laser generator i don't know anyone who's both yeah but it's a nice combination but i want more of them in my life too and then we have a few wraiths okay yeah didn't really you know care about them well they didn't have the one that's supposed to be at the dot at the bridge thing right that would be... right yeah see that would have been something yeah to have that like i think there's ways you can bring wraiths into changeling quite well just this isn't a good example of that yeah and the guy at the bridge, it's unclear whether he's actually a wraith or just a chimerical echo. Mm -hmm. And then we have the heroes. So statted up some of the characters from the novel trilogy, I believe, right? Yep. The six Oathmates. 
So these are the ones who, in theory, your player characters would be chasing through. I guess because you have stats, you could play them, but it's just weird to like... I mean, it would be like playing the Dragonlance heroes. Well, it said it said you could play them, but they're just going to be higher than starting care- level characters. Yeah, storytellers should be very careful in doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But their narrative is already kind of... Because the other stories are kind of structured around their story, I think it would be weird to play these characters in the three sample stories listed here. Mm-hmm. You could, yeah. but it would take a lot more work. But if you wanted to take the novel series as and have these as the player... Although that's six player characters, maybe you don't want to quite do that either. Um, oh, that's fine. <laughs> I did want to say Rasputin. Okay, so is Rasputin, have they had pictures of him in other books or have they reused that? Well, yes. So the characters in here, some of them are meant to be the splash page characters mm. by Deterlizzi at the beginnings of the chapters. Yep. So the Kith book Puka cover is Rasputin the Puka. Ah, that's right. Okay. And the troll is Tor. Lee is the she who has the sword kind of symmetrically oh, okay. so yeah, i recognize he's distinctive enough the other ones I... yeah i don't think the other three have that same thing Rasputin also has the one of the most unsettling chimera which is a chimerical snake born from the memory of the belt that his father used on him which is like a very changeling horror kind of mm-hmm. thing to have it's fun to do that with seely too <laughs> yeah i mean and that's the thing like one of the things I like about having the tie-in novels is it really shows you kind of the tension between Seely and Unseely in these characters. So that's something which I wish came through more easily. Mm-hmm. Well, it also seems like a sage realtor combination be hard to tell. Mm. Like externally, at least. Yeah. And then on the final page, we have a chronology of the Immortal Eyes first novel that gives you like a day-to-day summary of events. Mm-hmm. So you have what happens on each date and kind of how it proceeds through some of the Mm storyline. But again, this is like the plot that's listed out here. You could, you don't have enough detail to run as a game without the novel. So there's lots of sort of intertwined stories. It's almost like transmedia storytelling in a sense where it's, you need all these different pieces to kind of put together a holistic picture that you can then Hmm. fully decide how you're going to navigate through. Well, if you read through, like that intro in the first edition core book that we talked about. I think they were trying to do trans and, and yeah. you know, that Arcadia, the wild hunt and yeah, the novels and cantrip cards. And I believe kindred, the embrace came out not too many years. after. Oh this. yeah. So they were definitely doing transmedia stuff, trying to do that in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we had some questions. Maybe I'll ask you first and then, I feel we should mention who they're from. <laughs> yes, from Terry Robinson. Who's yes. Mage Questions podcast. from Terry. Yes. If you had cracked this book open, only having read the core book, would this at least partially given you what you want? I would say yes, because what I want is to see a rich, living and breathing, detailed world. And I think that this book does do that in the immediate sense of fleshing out San Francisco a lot, but then also... Also in showing those backstories of the characters and really showing levels of detail that are purely for art, you know, that are just kind of purely there for embellishment. So all of the little visual details and sensory details, I like having that to build my games around. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I understand not everybody wants that, but that's what I want. How about you? Uh, Yeah, it's similar. Like the caveat that if I picked it up in 1995... (laughs) 
it would actually be way more useful than it is now, but that's fine. It was written in 1995, not in 2022. And it, uh, yeah, so it's like the details of San Francisco would have been very useful back then. And like I said, well, I might have actually used the linear storytelling back when I was that age too. If you were just starting out. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been, I've been gaming for a few years, but I would have been new to Changeling and all that kind of thing. Even though I'm like, oh, nowadays, like, well, okay, again, I'm not going to, the, the basic mundane setting details, okay, I'll, I'll excuse that because it would have been needed back then. And the bits that I'm talking about, oh, it's not the linear stuff or whatever, like, it's such a, there's still so much usefulness in there and it's just one chapter that, yeah, I think it would have basically given me what I wanted as well. Right on. Well, and then the other question from Terry is, between the core and subsequent books for a lot of the World of Darkness books, there's kind of a shakeout process. What do you feel was set in this book that was maybe vaguer in the core? So I think the houses are more fleshed out here. Like, what does it mean to be Fiona, for instance? Or mm, yeah. Leonard or Gwydion, or maybe not Liam. But, like, it's a lot of them. And the politics in general, like, how the she interact with each other, how the commoners interact with each other, how the commoners interact with the she, all that. Some little mentions of things like, you know, the Celties and the Nunehain. It just, what does politics and changeling look like? I think this book was the first book that really has helped establish that. How about you? I mean, similar to the house thing, it gives you a clear sense of what a motley looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of these descriptions we have of things like Ragger's Band and the Brotherhood of the Barrel and all of that. It gives you a framework that you can build your own troops motley around because there are those dynamics of commoners working with commoners and how does that fit into the landscape? I mean, we also have Freeholds and Hidden Glens that does that to an extent for some of them, but I believe that was just after this. So technically this was first. Yeah, um, well, And also I think this does a better job of it. Yes. Yeah. It's got so much more to flesh. First of all, a few of the Freeholds and Hidden Glens didn't really, some of the chapters didn't really focus on that. But also in this book, it, it got so much more page count to flesh that out. That I can then right. look at this and go, oh, that's how you do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for the questions, Terry. Yes. And if, uh, yeah, if you want to be, I guess, should we, should we do final thoughts on the book? My only final thought is just, I mean, it does its job effectively enough. Some of the parts mm -hmm. haven't haven't aged as well as others. Like, I mean, like any yeah, any old uh, World of Darkness book, and the detail level is. I guess the detail level is a little uneven sometimes, but there are so many rabbit holes to go down that there's more than enough to like get you through. You don't need any of the immortalized stuff to have to find usefulness from the level of detail in this setting, which again was perfectly chosen, especially for when the game was released. San Francisco was the right choice. So yeah, so um, yeah, for me, I found I went into this book before I read it, going, uh, "This is going to be whatever, All right? Like it's." part of changing history but i can't really see it being that useful and now i'm like i'm glad i read this i think next time i run change like i might be looking through this book still yeah even if i'm not running in san francisco it's got enough stuff that i could go okay well whatever place i'm running this game this shows me some things to think about right and maybe some ideas to grab and what more could you want yes so yeah if you have uh if you have questions for us we have a discord now maybe we'll have the links in the show notes hopefully <laughs> yeah um, yeah <laughs> we also have twitter yes we have our twitter changeling cast yeah at changeling cast and our website's changelingthepodcast.com please visit yes so i forgot how we ended is that, that is that all she wrote yes
Until next time, this is Puka. This is Josh. Dream safe. Here come the outtakes. Yes, and I just want to get into You have experience with, you've been to San Francisco multiple times, from my understanding. I actually just returned from San Francisco less than 24 hours ago. So I feel... Yes. I feel very interesting with this question. Listeners at home can try to work out when that when we recorded this. Anyway. It's it is still too cold to be properly nice. That's the <laughs> that's my Really? Yeah, it was it was surprisingly cold and, and rainy. I mean there were some nice days, but I was um you know, I was glad I had multiple jackets. As one often is in San Francisco. San Francisco is a city where one needs multiple jackets. I'm just looking at the weather. See, it's looking really nice to me, but I live in Ottawa, Canada. So. Yeah, see? <laughs> I'd be like, that's t-shirt weather. What are you talking about? One thing I noticed while I was out there this past week, or two weeks, was that really walking around, you just see all these different kinds of plants that you've never seen anywhere else. And it's, you'll see, just like growing out of a sidewalk, some random flower that you almost don't believe exists, which is kind of a neat atmospheric thing to kind of have. Is that distinct about the area from the rest of California? I don't think so. I think California is one of like the very um, biodiverse regions yeah. of the country. There's a lot of, you know, there's all the little microclimates, but also I'm sure people bring in ornamental plants and mm -hmm. just kind of play the, put them wherever. Yeah. Well, yeah, from my understanding, yeah, the, the whole, it talks about it in this book, but just in general, like, yeah, the San, the Bay Area or San Francisco, whatever, that's ringed by those mountains along the coast, like, yeah, it's a sort of very distinctive kind of biome, kind of. Exactly, yeah. I want to momentarily hold forth on Welsh, if I can. Um, okay. So the mansion where the Duke, or the mansion where the Duchess holds court is... I'm going to spell it first. It's L-L-A-N-W-E-D-D. -D. And it's said that pronouncing it Lanwed is a perfect way to ensure that the Duchess will think of you as a certified hick. The problem is that the pronunciation they give is Lanweth, which is also incorrect. So <laughs> this is the problem with trying to do non-international phonetic alphabet pronunciation guides in changeling books. Trust me. How would you do the LL? So, the the pronunciation I believe would be Klanwith. right? So it's like doing. It's like you put your mouth in the position for an L and then try to say an S. Klanwith. Mm. Welsh. Yeah. Um, I think I, I thought I heard it described as something different, but maybe I'm thinking of a different character set of characters in Welsh, because there's one of them that's like the ending of Loch. But you'd put it anyway. Oh yeah. Well, thank you for humoring my my linguistic aside. Yes. Um. <laughs>